want delays. Obviously, I'm running for election. I can't. How can you run for election if you're sitting in a courthouse in Manhattan all day long? I'm supposed to be in South Carolina right now, where other people are and where, again, this is where I should be. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. Even by the standards of serial defendant Donald Trump, it was an extraordinary week chock full of activity and legal peril for the former president. Trump asked the Supreme Court to keep the D.C. Circuit immunity decision from going into effect, and Jack Smith responded in less than two days, underscoring the DOJ's determination to put the immunity litigation behind them and get on with the trial in Judge Chutkin's courtroom. The matter now sits with the High Court, which is very likely either to immediately boot the case and return it to Judge Chutkin, or set it for expedited treatment and issue a decision around the end of April. On the immediate landscape, the judge in Trump's New York hush money case set trial for March 25th, and in the process gave notice that he has little sympathy for Trump's refrain that legal proceedings in 2024 represent election interference. Finally, in an instance of the joys of live taping, the anticipated fraud decision from New York Judge Arthur N. Gorin arrived mid-discussion, but not too soon for our nimble group of stellar guests to respond. The week also called for some discussion of Trump's alarming comments about leaving our NATO partners to the mercy of Russian President Vladimir Putin, which resonated with a cold chill when the world learned of the death in prison of Putin's most formidable opponent, Alexei Navalny. To assess the legal blitzkrieg exploding in every direction around Donald Trump, as well as Trump's clear and present danger for the national interests of the United States, I'm really pleased to welcome three of the most excellent commentators, bar none, in the country. And they are... Emily Bazelon, a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, co-host of the popular and excellent podcast, The Slate Political Gab Fest, and a lecturer and Truman Capote fellow at Yale Law School. Before coming to the Times, Emily was a senior editor at Slate, where she co-founded the women's section X. Her newest book is Charged, The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. Welcome, Emily Bazelon, as always. Thanks so much. Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes the weekly column on life in Washington. It's gotten quite a lot longer and more interesting in the last few years. She previously served as editor of several Washington-based publications, including Politico, Foreign Policy, and the Outlook and National News sections for The Washington Post. She's written several books, including The Divider with Peter Baker, which we covered in a Talking Books episode. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Susan. Great to be with you guys. And Carol Lennig, a reporter at the Washington Post, where she focuses on the White House and government accountability. She is a four, count them, four-time Pulitzer Prize winner and the author of three best-selling books, including two charting the unprecedented presidency of Donald Trump, a very stable genius, and I alone can fix it. 
She's also an on-air contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. Thank you so much for joining, Carol. This is a great group. I'm glad to be here. Let's begin with the drama playing out perhaps this very minute at the U.S. Supreme Court, where the justices have to decide whether to grant Trump's emergency motion for a stay of the D.C. Circuit mandate dismissing his claim of immunity. So first, the mandate isn't that he's seeking to stay. He's not asking to take the case, but to stay the mandate below. How does the fact he's moving for a stay or moving to extend a stay affect the court's decision? I mean, the automatic answer, Harry, and I apologize for being sort of Sesame Street about it, is it will add more delay, right? That's really the point of everything that has to do with his interactions with the court. Not even whether the argument is very solid, whether there's a table of authorities, it's about the maximum amount of time to put off a decision. One of the more humorous ones I remember was when his lawyers were before the circuit, the three-member panel, Judge Pan, Judge Childs, and Judge Henderson, and the lawyer for Donald Trump said, if you decide to rule against us, don't worry about an opinion. Just wait and we'll see whether the circuit decides to take it up. It was basically begging for additional delay. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of today's podcast, we have one of in his diatribe after the New York case, he said, we want delays. But Susan, maybe this is where you were going. You know, isn't there a way in which the focus being on a stay, not the actual merits, could in fact speed things up? <laughs> well, I wouldn't pretend to know how the Supreme Court, you know, uh, looks at these things when they're behind closed doors. Uh, but certainly, Donald Trump has one play in the playbook. It's worked astonishingly well for him over an enormous number of cases over basically his entire career, uh, both in business and in public life. And that is put time on the clock. You never know what will happen, you know, as long as you're punching, you know, you're you're swimming, uh, you know, to mix the metaphors here. That's actually a perfect metaphor. Right. It sort of is. Uh, yeah, you know, he's totally. going to keep at it until the last minute of the last hour, of the last day, and then some. And I do think that for Trump, Every second that he's in court, that his lawyers are in court, which in this 2024 year means basically every day and multiple times a day, what am I getting in my email inbox? I'm getting an email, a fundraising email. And what does it say? As one I just happened to look at earlier today says, I'm being dragged into court once again, even though, of course, he's doing the dragging with all of these motions. I was really struck, in fact, the opening line of his lawyer's brief to the court in this immunity case is citing, you know, a Yogi Berra phrase. You know, my dad, he loved Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra actually lived on the street where I grew up. That's a totally different story. Wow, you buried the lead. Yeah, you know the famous thing of his, when you come to the forking road, take it? Because what people don't actually know about that, this is a complete digression, but kind of funny. When you come to a fork in the road, take it, is actually crazy sounding and it's accurate geographically because where my mom still lives and where he lived on Highland Avenue in Montclair, New Jersey, there is a parallel road. And when you come up, there's a fork in the road and either one that you take, you know, you can still turn onto Highland Avenue and go to his house. I'll just add like many yogiisms. It's actually, yeah, it, it, right. Exactly. But the point <laughs> about yogi, so this Supreme Court brief by Donald Trump's lawyers begins with 
a Yogi Bearism, not that one, but a different one in which it essentially is like, you know, here we go again, uh, you know, hearing the same old song, except ironically, they're complaining about a previous motion in which they tied up the case in knots by a previous effort to delay. <laughs> and I think that really captures what 2024 is all about, at least in the legal arena for Trump and his lawyers. Yeah, I mean, they win by losing as long as it keeps going. And I think also it makes it easier if the Supreme Court wants to add time to the clock, which so far it's been doing, it's easier on the justices to keep process going than to rule for Trump. Like that would be huge headlines. But this sort of dribbling along, which is actually you know, potentially going to make it impossible for Jack Smith to actually prosecute these charges, that's much harder for the general public to get excited about. Most people, including me, think they're not going to rule for him on the merits. So there's a way in which they could dispose of it right away. But to your point, Carol, he actually asked them for extra time to go back to the D.C. Circuit and ask all the judges from the circuit on Bonk to reverse the panel. So he is all about delay. All right, let me serve up this question. You're John Roberts. You've got this motion for a stay in front of you. What considerations and counter considerations are going through your head, do you think? Mm. I liked what Susan said at the start, like, woe be to us to think what's going on in the in the star chamber and behind the scenes. But it sure seems as though, despite people criticizing the circuit for its slow pokeness and wondering where in the world is this decision on immunity, it sure seems now reading it that there was a extremely calculated effort to knock out of the park any possible reason for the Supremes to take up the case. And I don't feel that if I can see that, that it is lost on Justice Roberts. <laughs> you know, I mean, Judge Henderson feels like she's telegraphing. We got this. You know we do. This is not a contest between circuits. It seems to me that the calculation is, what is the circuit trying to tell us? And if we want to dive out of this and dodge it, we have every good legal reason to do so. I've heard two arguments for why the Supreme Court might be likely to take this case. One is that it's just really important, and so they'll feel like they have to rule. And then the second is this idea that because Trump was the president, that if he asks them for something, they have to say yes. I have to say, I find both of them so unpersuasive in this context, right? I mean, it'd be one thing if they had all the time in the world, then yeah, sure. But they so obviously don't. The timing is crucial. And so it's just frustrating to think that such an easy legal question, because I think it is an easy legal question. I don't think there's really any dispute that he should not win this incredibly broad uh, blanket immunity claim. The idea that that's going to be the way this prosecution just does not happen if he's elected president, I just it just seems like such a bad outcome for the American legal system. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what's interesting here is, again, totally stipulating no clue, you know, how those justices' minds work, how their dynamic with each other works. But I think there are, even to us outsiders, some obvious competing interests here. On the one hand, speaking with the full force and authority and power vested in the judicial branch of the United States to say to Donald Trump with what we all are presuming and 
let's imagine that we're correct, you know, the full force of the judicial branch of the United States saying, no, we do not accept the idea that we have a czar in this country. You know, so that seems like an important message and one that I imagine the chief justice is eager to convey at the right time and in the right way. At the same time, Trump, he's such a threat and he poses so many challenges to the legal system. And we know that he's going to be filing case after case after case, not to mention were he to be elected to the White House. That would pose so many inherent challenges that you could imagine coming before the Supreme Court. You know, so we have both the rest of this very fraught election year to get through, including potentially Trump challenging the outright results of the election once again in some way that presents itself to the court, not to mention were he to be elected and the kinds of challenges that almost inevitably would end up at the Supreme Court. He has been a one-man generator of unprecedented legal questions. And so how do the justices look at like, is this the right time to expend our fire? Do they even think that way? Are they like, no, we don't want to have this case because they've made a very strong argument and there's no conflict between the you know, circuits to adjudicate here versus using the full power and majesty of their office right now to tell him, buzz off, buddy, you, you are subject to the law. Or is it maybe the right time for them to tell that to Donald Trump is after the case goes through and he would then appeal it again? I don't know, but I do, I can see the, the competing arguments that might be at play here. Does it matter, you think, Emily, that they took the Colorado case? They've already waded into the election in one way. I mean, you could see this as either a counterweight or come on, you know, we, we like a hole in the head. We need another one, especially for a court with relatively low public confidence. I don't think it's irrelevant. I just don't think it's the main <laughs> The main issue here, like to me, the idea that you could end a criminal prosecution against a candidate who was accused of trying to overturn election results because that candidate is elected to the presidency before the prosecution has a chance to play out, that just seems like a kind of banana republic answer. Well, let's stick with that idea and how it's how it would sort of play out. So let's say the Supreme Court denies the stay. Let's start um, there. Would it have a sort of separate political impact in piercing his arrogance or making him look like a loser? So in other words, are they maybe unwillingly looking at affecting the election, whatever they do, or is their ruling obviously of import to him legally, but not really in the election? I mean, isn't this where it's useful to them that they also have the Colorado case about whether he goes on the ballot? And so then, you know, he's presumably going to win that case. That seemed pretty obvious for oral argument. And then I think both the camp, the politics and the law, they could feel pretty good about the idea that the cases would cancel each other out. I loved what Emily said, you know, winning by losing. I mean, the only thing that really moves the dial against Trump politically is, according to the polling and pre-polling that all of our news organizations have been doing, is conviction. Conviction is the only thing that makes people say, huh, I think I'll look at this guy a little differently. And so every other event is going to be something that is well-milked by Trump and largely going to benefit his narrative thus far, which is that 
the Department of Justice has been weaponized against him and that he's being persecuted. And, you know, later, and he's done this before, Harry, you and I have talked about it. If the Supreme Court doesn't go his way, he'll talk about how dishonest and disloyal they all are to him and, and how they did him wrong, even though he got them their jobs, you know, sort of anathema to what any president would say, but it is working for Donald Trump to say it, that uh, he got them their jobs and gosh, by darn it, why haven't they delivered for him? He will invariably say that whether, I think, whether there's a rejection of a stay or a decision that he loses on immunity, he will say that there is a deeper state working against him and they're working against you too, dear friends, quote unquote deplorables. They, they view you with disgust and they're trying to stop you by stopping me. Let me just put my Supreme Court nerd hat on and say that I do think those are the two big possibilities and the way it will work if they decide to take it. It's unusual, but not so unusual in recent years. They will treat his motion for a stay as a petition for uh, cert, for review. And that already is a gesture very much in the direction of doing this fast They'll give a quick turnaround to Jack Smith, who, who showed this week he doesn't need it. He got a week and he you know, did it in a day. And I think they'll probably hear the case maybe the toward the end of March, say, early April, and decide maybe within a month. That's warped speed for the court. But you then go back to Judge Chutkin's courtroom, and he's got this big you know, chunk of time that had been held in abeyance but she really can't abridge because it would violate his due process rights. He gets to go through it. And we're talking about then a trial, if it happens, the sort of natural timeline, the way in New York yesterday, Judge Merchant said, I don't care, we're, that's, this is when we're going. The natural timeline right in the heart of the national election campaign between him and Biden. You know, as Carol says, everything's unprecedented with this guy but man, talk about a bizarre and not very pretty state of affairs, yeah? Well, I wonder, again, here's my question to you, listening to that and understanding the court. So these justices are calculating people. They look at the math. They do the calendar as well, right? What if you have a couple justices who you know, know that on the law, Trump isn't going to win on this immunity thing, you know, but you're Clarence Thomas or whatever. What's your play there? You tell Roberts, no, I insist upon uh, hearing this case, right? Harry, if they convert it from a stay to cert, does that mean they can grant cert with four instead of five votes? Because you were saying five for the stay, right? You can always grant cert with four. My very first case as a clerk, there were four votes to grant cert. It was a death penalty case. We couldn't get the fifth. They took the case, the guy was executed, mooted out. It's an iron rule. I don't think it'll happen here, but it would only be four. But, and to return to your question, they, I think, are on top of the clock. They would do it and want to do it quickly. So, you know, it's funny that everyone tiptoes around and doesn't say the, we really need to do this trial before the election words. There's some reason for that in DOJ policy, but... The court knows that very well, and it also knows very well. I mean, I think one of the more 
I guess I'd call it selfish, but it was ever thus in the Supreme Court uh, considerations is they they really do not want to be responsible for whatever bedlam ensues. And if they do that ruling, U.S. versus Trump begins in September. They're going to own that. They're going to own that. If that's what we're talking about, the angel or devil, whatever, on John Roberts' shoulder saying, look, just what you want to do is get out of this as clean as you can. Don't own as little as you can. The way to do that, take Colorado and have a lopsided result and deny the stay now. That's, that is the best way. But I think, I think Susan does the counterpoint quite right. You know, are they going to think we're the Supreme Court here and, you know, we have to decide it. But on your point about, say, Thomas, what could they do to sort of stall things? They could say, I'm writing a dissent, which they might well on the merits. But the point will come in a case like this, where Roberts would say, Clarence, Sam, if you don't have it together, we're releasing Monday and your dissent can follow. That's, that's within their ken. Okay. I've always thought of this case as the biggest, I guess because I, I was, it seemed from the start to me that, that Colorado was a non-starter. This is a really down the middle and consequential call for the court. I don't know if it'll play like Bush v. Gore or U.S. v. Nixon, but it sort of is. They're in their their sacrosanct room where no one else can come in, and I, I really, really would like to be a fly on that wall in particular. And I think a pretty good chance we know within a week, so we'll see. Let's go to something else that ripened into actuality this week. There's going to be a trial, criminal trial, uh, with Donald Trump on the other side of the V, as prosecutors are fond of saying, New York v. Trump. We've all been focused on everything but D.C., Mar-a-Lago, Fulton County, but the charges, you know, have been proceeding apace. There was this date on the calendar, Merchant, the judge there, had coordinated with Chutkin, we found out. But, you know, he said this has been there, and he was very forceful in saying, I don't care if it's a campaign. I think he's another New York judge that's going to bring Trump to heel. Let me uh, serve up this question, though. The case is prompting a sort of rhetorical struggle in which the DA wants to say, I'll quote him, the core of this case is not money for sex. It's about conspiring to corrupt a presidential election and then lying to cover it up. It's an election, so it's got that kind of gravity as opposed to the, you know, tawdriness of mere hush money for sex with a porn star a few days after your son is born in his Manhattan. But forget about that. Is Trump or Bragg, as you see it, winning or going to win the public perception of the import of the case? Will the public buy the argument that this is a, you know, righteous and weighty case, do you think? I think it's a tough sell. I mean, I think the tawdry nature of the case is just a hard to dispute. It's the headline. And I also think the cobbled together nature of the charges is a problem. The way that you get from a misdemeanor to a felonies with these election charges that haven't been used in this way before. Like, it's just, it doesn't trip off the tongue, this story. (laughs) And, you know, I think it's a stroke of luck for Trump that it could wind up coming first. And what if it takes long enough that even if the Supreme Court denies cert in the federal Jack Smith prosecution, that case has to wait in line because this one is going to dribble out over several weeks? I mean, that just also seems like a good outcome for Donald Trump. To Emily's point, like, not only is there questions about the case itself, but remember, 
this is actually a repeat of what happened last year. And from a political point of view, what happened is that there was intense speculation and questions, and it was the first indictment, which was at the time a big deal, the first criminal indictment of a former president of the United States was in New York in this very case that we're now talking about. And that set a political perception and played into Trump's narrative of political persecution and grievance, in particular the fact that the predecessor uh, had looked at this case and not filed criminal charges, was very useful for Trump. It He seized upon it. And remember, this was the beginning of the collapse of the Republican Party and what remained of the Republican Party. And Donald Trump used this sort of jujitsu political argument around this New York indictment to begin his reassertion of complete dominance over the Republican Party. He used it for fundraising gold. He destroyed Ron DeSantis in exactly this period. And I think it tainted the public reception to Jack Smith's criminal indictments, the federal cases. I know I'm speaking to august legal experts here, but unfortunately, you know, it seems to me that the opinions of the legal community about the seriousness and gravity of both the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case and the 2020 election obstruction case filed by Jack Smith became commingled in the public mind. And politically speaking, Trump was able to use it to great effect. And so I fear that we're simply seeing now a repeat of what happened last year in a way that is both politically useful to Trump and I also just wanted to put an asterisk to Carol made the point, which is an important point to make, which is that all the surveys done by everybody suggest that the one thing that might break through with Republicans would be conviction for Donald Trump. But I was already going to point out that you should caveat how you're thinking about that, uh, in my view, because we've seen eight years of Republicans. And when you poll them and they say, oh, well, this would be really terrible. Oh, well, it would be really terrible if you polled them and said to have a president who was a sexual assaulter. No, we don't want that. Like that would change my mind. And they always find a way, the vast majority of Republicans in this extremely partisan era to then justify the terrible thing when it happens, uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, because he's their guy. And so it's not that I'm saying I don't believe those polls. I think they're accurate, but I would take them with a grain of salt. Perhaps there will be some Republican voters. Perhaps they will be a meaningful number in a handful of key swing states <laughs> uh, in battlegrounds that matter. But it won't be equal to the numbers who currently say that in the polls. It will be fewer than that because there will be Republicans who justify whatever is used. And certainly a conviction in this New York case, I don't think that spells the end of Trump's presidential campaign. Here, here. Thus say we all. Thus say we all. Rightly said, Susan, every bit of it, you know, oh, I would never vote for a sexual assaulter. Oh, I'm really pro-law enforcement, except now I don't like the FBI. Oh, you know, I've always been worried about Russia, but actually now I think Putin's pretty great. These were all Republican stalwart anchors, and they are, have all fallen one by one. And for exactly the reasons she spells out. I, I would emphasize a related point from Emily about 
This is the least important case. The Southern District of New York did not pursue it because while Michael Cohen was a cooperator and had given up everything that he had and he went to jail, remember, for actually being on the receiving end and our co-conspirator in this matter, the Southern District did not pursue this case in large measure because it hinged on Michael, who had some differences in his testimony over time, which would raise concerns about credibility. And ultimately, what's the material interest to the public about Donald Trump paying, you know, magazines to have stories go away about his sexual peccadilloes, regardless of when they happened in the order of the birth of his last child. The most important case is the Jack Smith January 6th case. And the idea that it will have to be teed up after should worry everyone who cares about the democracy, right? Because the water's not so healthy out there right now, and it will be ever more bespoiled by this being the precedent. Can I say one more, like, Debbie Downer thing? Which is... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I've just been thinking about the mistakes that the prosecutors have made in all of these cases. And not, right, they're all trying to do their jobs, like, in good faith. But Jack Smith took forever. Alvin Bragg is bringing a case which I think to all of us seems, like, kind of problematic and discretionary. That Cyrus Vance Jr. was going to bring two years ago, right? And didn't, right? And Fonnie Willis is now embroiled in this, like, spectacle that she created of hiring someone who she was having a relationship with and just creating a lot of really bad PR for herself and questions of conflict of interest. And whether or not that conflict is a real one or not, that case is now kind of a mess in the public eye. And all of these mistakes just seem like own goals, like none of them needed to happen. Amen. I mean, Emily, I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, it just, it feels like, if you designed a scenario that A, would, you know, benefit Donald Trump, but B, like people are used to hearing these sort of sanctimonious lectures from the kind of, you know, legal community about the law and everything. And Trump, that's that's sort of his evil genius, right? Like he, he turns this brutal mirror on aspects of society. So he threw this mirror on Republican elected officials and man, you know, they showed themselves to be craving, ambitious, hypocritical sods. He throws the mirror up at foreign officials. You see, you know, their willingness to flatter, lie, do all the gross things that they do. And I feel like that's what's now happened to the legal community in many ways. He's managed to show that it's a series of very flawed and fallible institutions made up of flawed and fallible people. And not to add, but I would add one more important name to the mix here on, on your group of things, and that is Merrick Garland. I'm sorry, but you know, when I personally think about why are we going through this horrible ordeal, the worst possible ordeal, which is to mix Donald Trump's criminal culpability for things that are incredibly serious and this 2024 campaign. And I don't see any way around not blaming Merrick Garland for us being in this, this mess. And maybe he deserves more of the blame for the delay than Jack Smith does. I will also add one more uh, match to the pile, which is also Garland's choice of her as the special prosecutor in the Biden documents case. The virtue of choosing a Republican is it seems incredibly even-handed and high-minded and high-road. And then you see her take advantage of it by making this, you know, from a prosecutorial point of view, 
gratuitous attack on Biden's memory. Like, legally speaking, there's no reason to have that in that document, right? There it is, causes all this problem. And you start feeling like Merrick Garland is playing by this old set of very worthy rules that are easily manipulated by people who don't have good faith in mind. And it's discouraging to see the legal system having all of the challenges you were just talking about, Susan. Can I interject something there? I'm sorry, Harry. I, I have three things I want to get off my chest. Oh, because I, I got to come back for the AG. But you go first. You go yeah, first. I know. I know you do. <laughs> first off, Jack Smith, I wouldn't put any blame on that guy. And you kind of you kind of tweaked that a little bit, Emily, and I'm with you. I've never seen a prosecutor move as fast as he did. He's in traction from a bike accident, appointed as the as the special counsel. And four days later, he has sent out the subpoenas that Mar- Merrick Garland could have sent out on March 10th when he was in the seat of 2021. So a year and nine months later, this guy is working with rapid fire. I've never seen an indictment come out that quickly on the very narrow elements that he exposed, but largely the January 6th committee investigated and exposed for them ahead of time. I just want to say I withdraw your claim. Yeah, yeah. No, no sweat. I switch. I, I accept the blame shifting. You take the Smith load and put it more on Garland. More on Garland. <laughs> okay. now, now, Garland had an impossible job, right? He comes into a Department of Justice that has been whipsawed and weakened and, you know, Bill Barr, no matter how you view him, a guy who's super aggressive, active attorney general, or a Machiavellian political puppeteer, he reached in and interfered in very specific cases with very specific political goals related to Donald Trump. And Garland had to fix that. He had to address that. But the recoil on that led to a lack of subpoenas in 2021 that were totally would have been justified. On the Fonnie Willis, I would like to say one thing about Donald Trump. The guy is so good, so good at holding everybody else to a perfect standard, right? I think, what was she thinking? Didn't she know that anything she did that wasn't as pure as the driven snow, anything she put in her garbage can was going to be sorted through? I I asked that question, but really is the mirror that Donald Trump is going to hold up to her really a fair one? I don't know what the claims are by her former friend who worked in her office, whether they are legitimate. I am so torn about what she's going through. It was foolish for her not to see the standard she had to be held to just on what we know now. And it's unfair that that's the standard she has to be held to. Wow. What's a prosecutor to do after that eight minutes? I'm going to make two points, I guess, and let the others go. Fonnie Willis, just, you know, 100% complete completely imbecilic. You're the head of the office. It's just so goes without saying. But it's got nothing to do with a financial conflict of interest. And McAfee, the judge there, whom I'd respected so far, really let this circus start and proliferate about stuff that, you know, he should have held the defendant to some kind of proffer or proof that there's some kind of financial conflict of interest because they get exactly this tawdry story where, you know, I think some people were are impressed with her 
bravado or spirited testimony, but it so emphasizes this Jim Jordan's in on the job now and someone in Georgia. It It's a real, real mess. Okay, my man, my main man, Merrick Garland, <laughs> let me just say a few things. Her is a perfect example. Terrible choice, you're right, and completely political and unjustified what's in that report. But he is operating, as you say, Carol, on two levels, and that is the consequence that goes with his broader mission, and the White House does not like it, of trying to be neutral and restore integrity to the DOJ. That's what it means. And on the, I've, I've fought this fight many times, I think there are few months in there where he could have moved with more dispatch and instead was focusing on the marauders. But when you think about the investigation, when you think about what he did do and when he did do it, the notion that many tag him with for the whole delay doesn't really hunt, I think. We don't have to argue now. And then finally, there was never, ever going to be a scenario where this was all decided. We could have the trial, but, you know, the appeals were always going to go for he was. And if Trump wins, he was always going to be in the position to shut them down, et cetera. And Merrick Garland is the paragon of prosecutorial virtue of his generation there. I'll just say that a little bit. OK, anyone want a quick rebuttal on it? But then let's move on to. I'm not, I'm not going to rebut you about uh, Merrick, the paragon. Uh, don't disagree, quibble with you about the amount of time he had where he didn't do anything. But we don't know all. We don't know everything. Well, I kind of do. Um, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry, Rob Her. I know you guys are going to disagree with me, and that's okay. It makes it a better podcast. I don't think this guy was out for a political hit job. I don't think he was trying to burnish himself for the next U.S. attorney's job. I'm not making any excuses for him, and I don't have any special pipeline to him. But I've talked to a lot of people around him, and my sense is that he felt the same vice grip that Merrick Garland feels, which is we have a former president who took home a bunch of records and they're classified, they are top secret, and he stored them in a bathroom with a chandelier at Mar-a-Lago. We have a president who has a bunch of classified information, not documents, a little bit different, and he stored them next to the wheel hub of his Corvette. And of course the cases are so different, but her has to explain, why am I not charging this guy? And I would agree with the word gratuitous, but I think his reasoning about memory or his reasoning about the guy didn't know and didn't, I think he had to get there somehow. It was just a little too much gravy on it. Here's why I disagree with that. Her said that he was not going to indict, right? And so once you're at that point, making another point about why the jury wouldn't convict beyond a reasonable doubt that's what I find to be gratuitous, right? So he brought in his famous line about Joe Biden, the well-meaning elderly man with the poor memory, in order to talk about what the jury would do. But if you're not in charging in the first place, that's like extra. That's not something that is necessary to prove your argument. And there's no way he couldn't have understood how politically explosive that was going to be. And so to me, it seems very sneaky. And that's the part that feels political to me. And I have zero evidence for that. I also don't have any reason to think he was operating in bad faith. It just smells. I would agree with Emily's thing there on both the, the 
well-meaning elderly gentleman that obviously, uh, you know, he's not such a naive that he didn't know what that would be taken as. But by the way, I will say this. People are treating this as if it's some like unbelievable attack. Like, let's be honest, most of America, Democrats as well as Republicans, believe that Joe Biden is a well-meaning elderly gentleman with a poor memory. I mean, but that's the problem. That's why it was such an explosive attack. <laughs> <laughs> Donald Trump, who is a credibly accused sexual assaulter, serial bankrupter, and, you know, a business fraudster, and Democrats are going crazy, and they're going crazy on the media for reporting, you know, the conclusions of this report, which are newsworthy by any standard, but at the same time, you know, and it's not like Hillary in her emails. Like, let's be real. Like, it's a nasty sentence. I totally accept your argument and rationale that it was outside of the prosecutorial norms. I certainly have always understood it to be the case that, you know, for a prosecutor, once you've made the fundamental decision about charging or not charging, you're then supposed to, that's what is supposed to stand. But that being said, I do think I would, I would like to use the platform of this podcast to point out to people that it's not such a terrible slur to call Joe Biden a well-meaning elderly gentleman with a poor memory, because that is literally what most Americans think of Joe Biden. And then just final, like, 10 second on Garland and the delay. Harry, there's a huge difference between having had these trials outside of an election year and not having had these trials outside of an election year. And I totally take your point about appeals and whatever, but bottom line, this is a disservice to the American people. Cosign. All right. I'm going to, I promised a rebuttal, so I'm just going to shut up. But a point on her. What you're saying that everyone believes that that's part of the problem. In other words, it dovetails with the political talking points. And the real culprit here, it's the special counsel regs. It's the way we're fighting the, the last war because that's what leads him to have do his hands off. Here's when I said I have proof, here's my proof. It's tenuous in the extreme, by the way, to say, oh, well, here's why we don't indict. They will have sympathy for the defendant because he, he's old. I am certain, and anyone who's been at DOJ in a supervisory structure is certain that if that goes through, the supervisory chain, as it always does. I was U.S. attorney, which is a par parallel to him. But if you have a big indictment like that, it gets reviewed without the slightest doubt. That sentence gets, what are you whoa, kidding whoa, 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 me? Whoa, and on. so in that sense, hold he on, did Harry. deport. Why? One, one, one. Let me finish my day. <laughs> Your honor. <laughs> and so in that sense, it departed from norms. I think it's right about Emily. It's hard to see it as, you know, as naive. But the issue here, and it happens in other cases, is the complete, including Jack Smith, insulation from normal department review. I was just thinking about good old Bradley Weinsheimer, who could not be more respected as a down-the-middle career official, basically the David Margolis of his generation, right? He's the guy who's supposed to tell the attorney general and the deputy attorney general don't freaking do this. You look political. This is the right thing that we do every time. He's the one who wrote back to Bob Bauer and, and Dick Sauber, I believe. Bauer being Biden's attorney who protested about her report in drafts. And Dick Sauber being the special counsel for the White House on this matter. And he's the one who wrote, wrote back. Now, I don't think he was under like a cattle prod and said, this language is, is totally appropriate. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying, I think of that guy as, as the David Markle. You happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. So let's leave it at that. But I, 
I've talked to a lot of prosecutors, and your point is all well made about having to make the comparison, the things he said, but the gratuitous stuff I think is gratuitous and politically volatile. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues that are prominent in the news. Today's feature is about the Constitution's Confrontation Clause, a fundamental right in the Sixth Amendment that ensures a criminal defendant's ability to confront the witnesses against her. To explain the clause, we welcome the one and only the great and powerful Jane Lynch. Jane is an incredibly talented actress, author, singer, and comedian with more than 200 acting credits to her name. She starred as the delightfully devious Sue Sylvester on the hit TV series Glee, as Sophie Lennon on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a fantastic star turn that I recommend for all as Saz Pataki on Only Murders in the Building and many, many more. She's also starred in films such as Wreck-It Ralph, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and of course her unforgettable roles in Christopher Guest's ensemble comedies like Best in Show. So I give you Jane Lynch on the Constitution's Confrontation Clause. The right to confront witnesses derives from the Sixth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which states, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. This provision is known as the Confrontation Clause, and it gives a criminal defendant the power to force the government's witnesses to appear in person at trial and be subject to cross-examination. The Confrontation Clause is a procedural right that ultimately is designed to promote the reliability of evidence. The provision doesn't itself require that the evidence be reliable. Rather, it requires that the evidence's reliability be put to the test of cross-examination of the witness by the defendant. The clause is generally satisfied when the defense is given a full and fair opportunity to probe and expose infirmities in a witness's testimony through cross-examination. A full and fair opportunity to cross-examine generally guarantees the defendant a face-to-face -face meeting with witnesses appearing before the trier of fact on the theory that it's more difficult to tell a lie about a person to his face than behind his back. The right to confront one's accuser has long existed in the English and Roman legal traditions. For example, English common law developed the right of confrontation in the early 17th century in response to the use of written deposition testimony derived from secret government interrogations. The purpose of this legal right is to protect the defendant from illegitimate or unsubstantiated statements made against them. It further allows jurors to consider the witness's credibility under active scrutiny from the defense. Confrontation clause protections overlap with other rules against the use of out-of-court statements, known in the law as hearsay. However, the confrontation clause may preclude evidence that would otherwise be permitted under hearsay rules. For example, statements of a co-conspirator are a classic hearsay exception. And so the police could testify that a conspirator confessed to a crime and implicated a defendant. However, under the Confrontation Clause, the co-conspirator would be required to testify at trial and be subject to cross-examination. There are, however, notable exceptions to the right to confrontation. In cases where the defendant prevents the witness from appearing in court for the purpose of suppressing their testimony, by intimidation, for example, the defendant is considered to have waived their right to confrontation. 
Furthermore, since the mid-2000s, the Supreme Court has concluded that only testimonial statements, which are those made to law enforcement in a setting indicating they will likely be used as trial evidence, are subject to the Confrontation Clause. Thus, for example, when a person speaks to law enforcement to assist in resolving an emergency, as when she makes a 911 call, such statements are not considered testimonial and are not subject to the Confrontation Clause. For Talking Feds, I'm Jane Lynch. Thank you, Jane Lynch, for that explanation. Currently, Jane is hosting the beloved NBC game show, Weakest Link. The show returns with a new season on Tuesday, April 2nd on NBC. And you can also follow Jane and all her newest projects on Instagram and threads at Jane Lynch Official. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we look at three different techniques for making rose wine to see if there's truly a best way to rose. First, Rosé is a type of wine that's actually produced quite similarly to reds, but the fermentation time of the grape is reduced, giving rosé its signature pink color. The first technique for making rosé is the skin contact method, in which black-skinned grapes such as Pinot Noir are crushed but allowed to remain in contact with the juice for a short period of time. After about 6 to 48 hours, as opposed to weeks or months for the reds, the skins are separated. This method is most frequently used in the top rosé-producing region of the world, Provence, and throughout the south of France. The second method is called saigné, which is the French word for bleeding. This method creates both a rosé and a red wine. Early in the maceration process, some of the pink juice created from the grape must is removed to make the rosé, while the remaining juice becomes a more concentrated red. A rosé made from this method tends to be richer and darker in both color and fruit flavor. This method is more rarely used, but it can be found more often in rosés from Spain, Napa, and Chile. The third method is blending. Contrary to what some people think, blending is not just a 50-50 pour of red and white wine. Instead, blending is where a white grape, such as Chardonnay, is blended with a red grape, and it's the most popular way to make a rosé champagne. Although popular in champagne, this method is used in still rosés as well. In fact, some winemakers in Provence choose to blend small percentages of white grape varieties into their rosés. It's not always obvious or easy to know which method was used to make a particular rosé, but the expert guides at Total Wine & More can help you navigate our wondrous selection to find a rosé that makes your day. So find what you love and love what you find, only at Total Wine & More. Cheers! And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate.
Guys, I think there is breaking news on this, unless I'm misreading. The um, civil fraud judgment? Yeah, $350 million. Donald Trump just sent out a email, a fundraising email saying, breaking from Trump, Democrat New York judge just ruled against me with a little bit of information about how you can donate to end the witch hunt. <laughs> this is the Angoran case. It's real. It's as big a financial hit as one gets. And he's going to really have to come up with it as a bond. You add to that the Eugene Carroll case. He's, you know, he's approaching half a billion dollars. $438 million total. Right. And Carol, this just in, anything about whether Angoran approves the AG's request to keep him from working in the real estate industry in New York? Says is barred from New York business. For three years, though. You know, we've all thought about it. Why don't we take a, you know, live radio detour on this? You know, I have a point or two to make. First, it's real money. It's honest to God. He's going to have to post the bonds. And Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. are barred from serving as an officer or director of any New York corporation for two years. For two years, which is about what she asked for. I think it's noteworthy. She asked for 370. He gives 350. I'd sort of predicted that. He's thinking of appeals now. So, you know, Engeron goes just under. Let's all agree that he asked repeatedly to get walloped and he got walloped. Yeah. What do you guys think about this just for him practically, but also politically? This is a loss. He's brought to heel, but it's not, you know, the kind of thing that the polls have suggested would move a needle. I like how you set that up because it's not important to his political fortunes in any way, but it was important to him personally, right? It's his company, it's his identification, it's his name on the top of the tower in St. Petersburg. And, you know, even though he pretended with a pile of papers soon after being inaugurated that he was going to put this property in his son's hands, he was really running it while he was president. And that's how much it mattered to him. It's not eponymous for no reason. And so I think it will be a big personal hit and not a great financial one. The financial pain will be less than the personal pain, in my view. I agree with Carol that it's sort of gotten lost in his new, you know, political identity. But the Trump organization was Donald Trump. It's not like some big corporate entity. Uh, It was the expression of who he was and his life and all of his life work prior to entering politics was this. And so from his point of view, it's not an action taken by New York State against a company, but an action taken against him personally. And I think that's very important to understand his psyche. I also scares me, though, because Trump right now, he truly is a man who the bridges behind him have been burned. There is no going back. It's part of, I think, what we're seeing in real time, the ongoing radicalization of Trump. He might have started out as a kind of narcissistic exercise to, you know, run for president and increase his brand value, whatever. But it's not that anymore. And he has nothing to go back to. And then just the final point, you know, Trump is barred for three years from doing business in New York State. But he would be allowed to have the power over America's nuclear arsenal, you know, (laughs) At the same time, the man can't even like write a a business check in New York State. I mean, come on. This is just we are going to have a lot more data points like that, you know, as we charge down this insane 2024 year. But 
that's a pretty crazy one. Right. And getting insaner. I shy away from trying to psychoanalyze him, but there's certainly a way of looking at him where, you know, he got the brand from daddy and look how good he did. And so his brand now, you know, ends with just being shredded and put in the in the wastebasket. That's it's hard not to see that as well, as infuriating for starters, but a really significant loss. Man, oh man. Well, we got just a couple minutes. We'll stick with Trump. Navalny is found dead in Russia today, and Trump yesterday is talking about if countries don't pay their up their fair share, like, for example, as Carol has shown, uh, France and Germany, I'll let Russia, you know, have its way with them. In terms of insaner and saner and the world we're possibly looking at, what about Trump, NATO? What's the sort of current impact of his saber rattling on the campaign trail for the free world? Let's uh, let's not mince words. I just came from a lunch with a ambassador to a uh, NATO country just now, and you know, let's say that the level of concern and panic is justifiably. Hi. And both Carolyn and I know from reporting on when Trump was in the White House, to the extent this man, he doesn't have really a fixed ideology, but he has some deep rooted beliefs, a disbelief in NATO and in the value of permanent alliances and certainly of anything multilateral is at the core of who Donald Trump is. And those statements, as shocking as they were to many Europeans as well as many Americans, are fully consistent with both who Trump is and how he moves. I mean, you know, there was a scene that we wrote about in our book that I've been thinking about all week since Trump made these comments when his advisors back in 2017 were trying to explain to him NATO and how Article 5, the the principle of self-defense, that's mutual defense that's at the core of the treaty, how that works. And he interrupted them and he said to them, wait a minute, you're telling me that I'm supposed to go to war for Lithuania if Vladimir Putin invades Lithuania? No way am I doing that. Are you crazy? And he's never supported this. And that's the reason that Vladimir Putin will keep his deadly war going on in Ukraine until the American election. And that is the reason why whatever crazy Saya Putin you know, says about wanting Biden, that's why he wants Donald Trump to win our election. Anyone who thinks, and I've been watching Putin for the entire 20 plus years that he's been in power, and anyone who thinks that Putin would stop after being victorious in a war in Ukraine and not seek to go back to the previous borders of the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire and not pose a threat to his neighbors in the Baltics and not pose a threat to Poland, they need to think again because uh, there is no way that this ends with Ukraine. Everything Susan said, I endorse. And the, the last point I'd make is I found it sort of chilling to listen to Donald Trump remake in his mind what happened at NATO when he frightened everyone by saying he was thinking about pulling out. For sure, he shocked the pants off his own aides and his national security advisor and all of the uh, accoutrement he had. But he did not say what he remembers saying, which means... He believes he said that, and he can't wait to do it. He can't wait to invite people in to invade Russia if they don't pay their share. The other shocker is 
to Susan's point, his aides have tried to explain to him how NATO works. It is not that they are owing back rent. <laughs> you know, they have a general idea, an agreement that people will pay 2% of the GDP towards defense. And most of the countries are at 1.9 to 1.7 that he has a dispute with. And that is not failing to pay their share to the United States in rent. To see everything as if it's a Trump Tower condo is a problem. But to be so dependent on Putin in some way we haven't entirely figured out is the root of this this danger. Emily, go for it. Tell us what, what's the last word. I'm just going to say on behalf of Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. And we are out of time. Thank you so much, Emily, Carol, and Susan. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Oh, and some exciting news. You can now leave voicemails with your questions for me and our guests, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. All you have to do is call 727-279-5339 and leave a voice message. That's 727-279-5339. You can also email us your questions at questions at talkingfeds.com. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Catherine Devine, associate producer Meredith McCabe, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistance by Akshaj Turbailu. Thanks very much to the great Jane Lynch for explaining the Constitution's Confrontation Clause. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. Talk to you later. Talk to you later.